Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Coming up on today's show, let's talk about the center in this country. We'll speak with Rick Peterson, founder of Center Ice Conservatives. We'll find out what that's all about. An invisible border with the United States, especially around energy. Sounds great. There's some things we should maybe be aware of. We'll talk with Donna Kennedy Glantz. And we're getting older, in a hurry, and it's going to affect all of us. I can't remember if it was a month, two months ago, six weeks ago, but we had um, we had a guest on, Daniel Veniers, talking about um, a new group, Center Ice Conservatives. They wrote a piece for the Global Mail talking about how we're, we're spending too much time focused on the fringes in this country. Most of us live in the middle, and we need to do a better job of making sure those voices are heard. Now, to that end, they formed this group, Center Ice Conservatives. And I'll tell you, when we did that interview, the response was overwhelming. Um, people really, really liked what they had to say. And I think it's just testament to the fact that that's what most of us want in politics. We don't want what we have. We want more realistic discussion. So uh, they've launched. They're up and running. They're they're an ongoing concern now. So we're going to find out all about it. We're going to chat with Rick Peterson, who was a Conservative Party of Canada leadership candidate in 2017 and in 2020, and is the founder of Center Ice Conservatives. Rick, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Well, Shay, it's a pleasure to be here, but I have to say following Dan Vignier is a tough act to follow. It's like getting on stage after you 2 has been there. So uh... I'm not going to lie, Rick. I, I, I think of all the guests we've had on the show, he might have been the most uh, well-received. People, But, you know, he's fantastic, but his message was really good, too. People want this. Absolutely. Dan and I are friends from way back, and as we said in the Globe article, uh, we have a few things that separate us. He's a, he's a Montreal Canadiens fan. I'm an Oilers fan. And uh, he's a, a centrist liberal, uh, Shay, and I'm a centrist conservative. So lots of more in common that separates us. And, and thank you for having Dan. He's an eloquent uh, speaker and articulator of where we're going. But we both belong to the center of the political spectrum. And the message that we're trying to bring across with center ice conservatives is, hey, Let's be bold. Let's talk about issues that count here, and let's ignore what's happening on the fringes. So let's talk a bit more about the group. Who's in it? I, there's some there's some names that will definitely be familiar to our listeners. If you look at uh, the website, uh, centerraceconservatives.ca, we've got uh, Marjorie LeBreton, former conservative um, senator. We've got Lori Hahn, former MP from Edmonton Centre. And uh, Dominic Carty may not be known, Shay, in Alberta or in Western Canada, but he is a New Brunswick uh, Minister of Education and Early Childhood Development, part of the Progressive Conservative government there. And uh, Dominique is chair of our advisory council. So uh, this idea started, uh, Shay, early May. Um, a couple of us having a coffee, talking about let's getting this going. There's about 100 people that were giving us insight and input when we started it. Um, I'd say 40% of them are liberals. Hmm. 40% of them said, love what you're doing. We can't sign on because we're... We're liberals, we're not conservatives, so the core group of us are federal conservatives, no doubt about that. But there is tremendous interest uh, from blue, blue liberals. Now, and as you say, the goal of this is just to try and focus discussion more on, like you said, 
the issues that we can find some common ground with, right? I mean, we agree on more than we disagree on, but we spend more time yelling at each other about the things we don't agree on. Let's have a little more discussion about the things we can actually work together on. Is that the plan? It is, uh, and to provide a platform, Jay, uh, as you know very well, uh, in your position, you see all kinds of groups that have different issues and, and uh, different drums that they're beating. We are focusing on what we hope to see are issues that resonate with mainstream Canadians and in the political aspect of it. Let's give credit where credit is due, right? Liberals are not all bad. Conservatives are not all good. We both have input into things that we have to give credit for. 90% of Canadians don't follow partisan politics, leadership campaigns, nomination campaigns. They're looking, and these are the swing voters, Shay, in the last federal election, yeah. there were 45 swing voters. These are the people that decide elections. These are people, they're not on the fringes. They're in the middle. Uh, I agree with you. Um, how do you do this, though? That's the question I have, Rick. What is it, um, you know, when we've got a conservative leadership campaign underway as we speak. How does your group get involved? Does your group get involved in things um, like that? Or what's the plan? How do you affect this discussion? I love uh, this question because our core group of about 12 of us who are doing the uh, day-to-day work on the side of our desks um, are all involved in the leadership campaigns of all the different candidates. It's really funny. We have people involved with Pierre Polebs, with Patrick Browns, with uh, Jean Charest. We want to focus on our ideas. We want to make sure that all these leadership candidates realize if you are not attracting centrist voters, you will never be prime minister. Mm-hmm. And that is a clear message. Now, appealing to the base is important, but I think what is fascinating, if you look at the candidates uh, tomorrow, I believe is the deadline, um, there is a good, strong movement of four or five candidates that are restaking themselves out in the center. Pierre Polev, I think, is messaging is messaging that perhaps could resonate with a lot of people in the center. So this campaign, Shay, is a very interesting one, but we want to make sure that there is a voice and a platform for these people and these ideas because there is not one. There is nobody out there right now advocating for the middle of the road. So it's working from inside. Will you be endorsing one? Will you say, okay, you know what, Jean Charest is doing more of what we like, what we would like to see in politics. Does it go that far or is it trying to influence from within? Nope, it's uh, two things, influencing from within, but highlighting among all the different candidates ideas that we like. Yeah. Ideas that we like. And there's been very little policy so far. We'll obviously wait until the uh, the first debates in Edmonton on March 11th. And, and uh, um, you know, I've been asked to join CTV PowerPlay to be a commentator on this uh, from the point of view of its interest. So there you go. Already, our profile is there. What about um, where you get involved? Does it does it extend to provincial? I mean, we've got a provincial election coming up in Alberta next year. Will you be involved in working with those campaigns and talking about issues with them? Or is this strictly a federal policy? Federal, Shay, there is, believe me, enough moving messy parts uh, <laughs> provincially. I don't want to have anything to do with that, right? But So we're... We're focused on federal. Uh, interesting thing, several of us are fluently bilingual. You're going to be seeing a French-language version of this coming up soon. But um, we're looking for just voices, sending us ideas, sending us things. Um, we are probably two or three weeks away from being able to announce some relatively high-profile people that are coming on board. And by on board, Shay, I simply mean, hey, they like this. They want to participate. They want to have their voices heard. And it is 
this truly is grassroots, and, and it's, uh, it's fun. It's exciting, and we're looking forward to it. I uh, got a good text from a, a listener, and, and basically the point of the text is this is a, it's an interesting argument. He calls it a weird argument because of the fact that, you know what, you, the, the last two conservative leaders, uh, Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole, both sort of adopted your policy of we need to be closer to the center if we want to get elected. It didn't work for them. I mean, they did win popular vote. Barely, but they weren't elected leaders. So, how do you sell the message? I mean, I I agree with you, but how do you say if you want to get elected, you need to move closer to the center? Because they're going to say, well, the last two did that, and they got the floor mopped with them. That's wrong. They did not approach the center. Andrew Shear had difficulty articulating part of his platform. He did that never fully embraced the center. Shay, so he failed. Uh, Aaron, people didn't know where he was. Right. Aaron um, did a very good job of winning the leadership, but when he moved latently over to what was thought would be the center, I think he confused people, and he alienated people in both camps. He's a, he, he's a very strong man. Aaron O'Toole is somebody I admire. But when it comes to your campaign, I think what we're seeing unabashedly in this leadership race is nobody is nuanced. Here's where we stand. Jean Charest is in the center. Patrick Brown looks like he could be. We'll see some others. But nobody has embraced... You know, we talk about former progressive conservatives. What used to be progressive 20 years ago, that's mainstream now. Mm -hmm. Women's rights, LGBTQ, right? Indigenous reconciliation. This is mainstream stuff. Climate change. If if our next conservative leader goes into the next election and people are wondering, is this person serious with climate change or not? The fact that that question is out there means we're going to lose. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree completely. Uh, and uh, I, I, I respect and I understand your your want to stay, you know, somewhat neutral when it comes to candidates and, and be involved with everybody and sort of be influencing. Does it get to the point that when you see somebody, and I mean, let's talk about the conservative movement because that's what you're focused on, but sure. this would also apply to the left side of the spectrum too. There are voices in Canadian politics that we would see as um, not centrist. Do you speak out against them? Do you point out that this is damaging? I mean, part of the statement that you put out yesterday is you're fearful for where we might be headed based on what we see in other parts of the world if we don't guard against this fringe taking over. We have a wonderful uh, advisory council member named Anne Francis Sachet. If you get a chance to get her on your program at some point, she's in Montreal, and she's door-knocked uh, for the last two elections as a candidate on the West Island of Montreal, which is not conservative territory. But Anne uh, was telling us yesterday or the day before, she said when she goes to the doors and she tells people that she's conservative, People paint conservatives with a brush based on what they see coming over social media and what's coming from the South, yes. what's coming yeah, from the U.S. For sure. Right? And she said, but no, that's not me. I'm, 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 I'm conservative. And it's not as if the party, and, and Anne articulated this very, very well yesterday. She, she said, it's not as if our party has to move to the center. Most of us are already there. Yeah. Most of us are already there. Nobody knows it. So... If you have a hidden treasure that all you got to do is develop it, it's not a question of moving the party to the center shape. It's those of us in the middle, speak up, be vocal, be visible, and in a leadership race, make a difference in a riding. If anybody is interested in signing up for the conservative leadership race or the liberal or the NDP, a vote on a leadership race is one of the most powerful votes you're ever going to have. Right? So if we can attract people in Canada to come and sign up and take out a membership for the Conservative Party and have a say in a centrist candidate, I think we're doing our job. 
Well, it'll be fascinating to follow along. And, and Rick, I promise you, we will check in regularly because I really like Thank this you. message. It sort of it, it fits with exactly my thinking. So uh, we will check in regularly and get updates as we go along. Thank you, Shay. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, that is Rick Peterson, who is the founder of Center Ice Conservatives, was a Conservative Party of candidate uh, leadership candidate back in 2017 and 2020. And as you heard, he's just the basic message is, you know what? He, he believes, and I agree with him, and you can tell me I'm wrong if you want. Some of you are on the text line. Um, the majority of conservatives are not far-right conservatives. They're center-right conservatives. And the majority of liberals are not far-left liberals. They're more center-left liberals. And there are more things that we agree upon, and we can actually accomplish something by focusing on the things that we agree on rather than fighting on the things we don't agree on that most of us don't really care about. A lot of the issues that we get caught up fighting about are long settled. The ship has sailed, but still we go back to them over and over and over. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Energy dependence and independence. Big, big issue right now. Um, always is, but perhaps more so than, uh, you know, other times, simply because of what's going on uh, in Ukraine right now. We, you take a look at what's going on with a number of European countries that are sort of really stuck through their own, you know, design, because they're at a position now where they would love to shut down Russian oil and gas and not be spending millions and millions and millions of dollars on it, and in effect, funding the war effort for Russia, but they can't. They are utterly dependent and reliant on um, Russian oil and gas. Now, we have, of course, a huge oil and gas sector in our province, and we talk a lot about energy independence, but at the same time, we're really intertwined with the United States. And not long ago, Senator Joe Manchin of the United States was up here in our province meeting with the Premier, touring some facilities and things like that. And the concept of an invisible border came once again, talking about North American energy independence. Not the first time we've talked about this. It's certainly been discussed before, uh, but it came up once again. Donna Kennedy-Glanz wrote a piece about this this week. Uh, Donna, of course, is Alberta's former Associate Minister of Electricity and Renewable Energy and author of Teaching the Dinosaur to Dance, Moving Beyond Business as Usual. Uh, Donna, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Oh, I'm happy to be with you, Shay. Yeah, this discussion, I mean, that invisible border, right? We like to think of it in a lot of ways as we have this border with the U.S., but really we're all one big happy family, and it's not a new discussion. We've certainly had this before. And that's part of the problem. We keep having the discussion when we're in a crisis. Maybe it's, you know, <laughs> mad cow disease and our cattle can't 
across the border and that's our big export market or maybe the u.s decides that you know they're not going to build the pipelines and they're going to be energy self-sufficient or you know automobiles like we just make ourselves vulnerable again and again and i know we're only one-tenth of the economy of the united states but we're a country, so it, it is not an invisible border. It is a border, and we have to actually think about that. It's a bit paradoxical because we have a very integrated North American market, but we are a country. We have a border that, you're right, it's not an easy distinction to make because we are so closely intertwined, and let's be honest, pretty reliant on that massive, massive export market that is just south of us, right? I mean, we ship tremendous amounts of everything we do in this country across the border to the U.S. Exactly. And then sometimes we rely on American investment here in our own country to do things like meatpacking. I mean, the meatpacking monopoly is probably an overstatement, but there aren't that many players packing meat, and they're big, and they're largely American-owned, and that's who's invested here in our infrastructure. So it's just that whole question of what do we need to make sure we have as a country in terms of market access and diversification of market, value add in our own country and our own know-how so that we we are not vulnerable. Germany right now, I, I you know, I feel sorry for anybody who's sitting in that country having to cough up rubles to pay for Russian natural gas right now. That's got to be pretty tough. But they were complacent, and, and I fear we are sometimes too. <sighs> Overall, when you take a look at it, it, it can we are you are you recommending a more isolationist approach? And if so, oh. would that be detrimental? <laughs> oh, I think that's an awful concept. I I know we're I know that globalization is unwinding and we need to think about that and I'm sure supply chains will change yeah. and, and be altered and, and the aftermath of this war in Russia. I'm sure there will be lots of changes and we'll have to deal with those. But no, no, no. This is not about isolation. It just means that we have, we do have the means to take care of our own people, our own survival. Um, we needed to have access to vaccines when COVID happened and we got cut out. Now, we're lucky, we're really lucky that we got access to vaccines, but maybe next time we should have the capacity to to manufacture our own vaccines here in our own country i i I, that's not isolationist that's just kind of and i'm not even sure it's it's as risk adverse as belts and suspenders it's just being smart on things that really matter you know one of the things i keep looking at right now with the united states they are going to need fresh water when they need fresh water I don't want the border between Canada and the United States to be invisible. Right. We're two countries. We need to negotiate that. We need to be clear about that. You know, there was a time in Canada when we had to care about energy security. You know, back when oil sands were just beginning, um, when Lougheed was, you know, drilling, you know, like crazy and Alberta Energy Company was created. I mean, in those days, we worried about energy security. And, and, and here we are again in a funny, funny new world that, that has, uh, has some semblance of the past. 
things change and we need to be prepared. And I'm not sure we always are. Um, I, I think that's a great point. We, we sort of, I think we take our position for granted due to the fact that we are next to the United States. And occasionally, like you say, when it comes to vaccines, um, we sort of treat it as, oh, well, we're just you know, I don't want to say we're part of the United States, but we consider ourselves an extremely close cousin, perhaps, and, and they'll take care of us. And when they don't, it's kind of like, oh, wait a minute. Well, we're, we're pretty much dependent. So I think you make a good point in terms of we can sort of look after ourselves a little more in some of these areas. Well, I, I think security in the North. Um, yes. We certainly, you know, the NORAD question and how much money we've contributed to NATO is, is a bit you know, we, we're now talking about that. We're upping the ante. We've got to deliver the goods. It's not just about writing checks. But NORAD's a different beast. I mean, the, the North, if, if Russia is indeed successful in this war, and I personally believe that relationship between China and Russia and Xi and Putin is real, um, they are talking about massive development in the North. And, and while it's not exactly the North that's, you know, where where our sovereignty lies is Canada, it's pretty darn close. And I think we're going to have to wake up. I, I That's a place where I hope we do spend money as a country. Um, we need to be responsive. We can't just assume the United States is going to look after us all the time. Exactly, exactly. Um, when we take a look at what's going on, Globally, you're right. There's a readjustment here. There's a re- resetting of a lot of the things we used to think. And um, where do you anticipate this going? Like, do you expect more countries are going to be? Because I mean, you talk about European Union, and that was largely about mm-hmm. breaking down a lot of those barriers and creating no borders. And you know, we have sort of that working relationship with the U.S. Do you think, generally speaking, countries will start to say, "Okay, we need to put ourselves first. Doesn't mean we shut the borders, and you know tune everybody out, but we need to put more of an emphasis on this? Well, I think maybe a more positive way to say it is is to say you have to be self-sufficient. I mean, yes, there's the EU, but Germany is the one forced to make the decision right now. Poland and Bulgaria could accept um, Russia pulling the cord on, on natural gas. You know, we're going to shut off the taps. Yeah. Well, we're okay. We, we can survive that as a country. Um, Europe can't as a whole but they can as a country, and that's the first step. And I think sometimes we don't think about that. And yet, you know, we've had Senate hearings on on the beef situation. We had big Senate hearings, and they came out with rep. I, I'm very close to the beef industry. I grew up in, in a cattle farm, um, so I watched those hearings in 2003. Big, big serious questions and they concluded that we had a problem we had to do something about it but but we didn't and i i feel like we've got piles and piles of reports in cupboards where we've got good thinkers coming up with good ideas and good recommendations but then we don't do anything because there isn't what political will or it's it's hard to drive these decisions through bureaucracy because they're not comfortable uh, you know, I, I, I think a sense of urgency on some of these things, not just in crises, but to actually think it through. The cost of not being prepared is 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 hurting us. It really has hurt us. There's a huge downside here that yeah. we fail to assess. 
I, that's a great point. You know, it's better to do it ahead of time based on what you're seeing in other places rather than wait till those things happen to you. It, uh, it's just good planning. That's all it is. Yeah. But I, I do think there's a complacency and I, yeah. I you know, just the, how we make, how we implement decisions, like watching us pull out, you know, some of the re, the, the reserve stock and, and send it over to Ukraine from our military. I mean, that that's, kind of eye-opening um and now we're we're in a queue for some bombers but we're at the back of the queue now so i i don't want to beat up our decision makers and implementers too hard but i think we could spend the same dollars and do a better job and and just get ahead of this instead of being behind it all the time fair point donna thanks so much for joining us today really appreciate it So you remember yesterday we were talking about the latest census data from 2021 showing that from for the first time since the end of the baby boom, the boomer generation in our country now makes up less than a quarter of the century's population. We're getting older. Uh, the data shows that seniors over the age of 85 are among the fastest growing groups in the entire country. That group in size has more than doubled since 2001, and it's expected it'll triple by 2046, 85 and above. And the other issue is we simply are not producing as many young people. We're not even coming close to replacing the number of older people leaving the workforce. The young people are not coming along in equal number. It's getting getting to a bit of a situation where it's really going to have an impact on us. So to get some details on that, we're going to chat now with uh, Dr. Jacqueline McMillan, who's a clinical assistant professor of geriatric medicine at the University of Calgary and co-lead of the Calgary site of the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. My pleasure, Shay. Good morning. You know, this this census story that came out yesterday, I think for people who've been paying attention, and most of us have heard this over the years, this trend is not new, right? This has been happening for quite a while. We've seen this coming. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. It's I think the 2016 census began to show us that, but it's been going on for a number of years. And what's really interesting about this is some of the projections and what Statistics Canada is telling us about where we could be in the next 10 or 20 or 30 years and and the way that our demographic is going to undoubtedly change over that time. That's the thing, doctor. It's not like we've reached the peak or this is the bad point. No, this trend is continuing and it's only going to become a wider gap, right? Yeah, exactly. I think when they when they speak to young people too, like part of it is due to um, the replacement of our population where we're having fewer children. So there's fewer in that zero to 15 age range. And when they speak to young people, a lot of people are, are delaying um, having children. And so our replacement of the workforce is, is changing. And that, that impacts all of society when we have fewer people in the workforce and we have um, different demands on society and planning and what we're going to need for health care and, and um, accommodation for a changing demographic. And those seem to be the two main concerns right now from the analysts is our healthcare system, which we know is going to be taxed and is not going to have as much replacement staff, and long-term care, which we know is going to be stressed and, again, is not going to have the replacement staff. Those are the two main areas of concern, right? Yeah, it's a real concern. Like, if you think that when you mentioned the number of the people who are over the age of 85 have it being one of the fastest-growing age cohorts, and that's the, the people that I interact with all the time and love being involved in their care and um, a quarter of them live in congregate care so things like long-term care nursing homes seniors apartments 
And we're going to need more of that if we're going to triple that population in the next several decades. We're going to need more of that type of care. And I think we need to hear their input. Like, do they do they want different types of care? Should we should we have be having more long-term care, more home care? It sort of begs the question and puts a lot of ownership on all levels of government to to start planning for what's undoubtedly coming. And I think if you're a young person right now, you might be thinking, okay, well, this doesn't necessarily impact me, but but it does. It impacts society, generally speaking, and families, right? If we, if we get to a situation where long-term care is less accessible, maybe less affordable, things like that, the, I don't want to say burden, but the responsibility will fall in many cases, I think, to family members. It will be more in terms of we need to take care of the elders in our family. That will be something that becomes more common in society. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's easy to be in that 15 to 64 age group and think, how does this impact me? How, why, why is this meaningful? And I think the reason it is meaningful is that the 15 to 64 years are the ones who contribute to goods and services, and we're the ones often contributing to production of those things. And then you, say, you think of the dependent age groups, that's the generally 65 and above and generally 15 and below and if you have fewer and fewer people who are contributing to the goods and services, you have to um, think about how that changes um, how we prioritize things for the population as a whole. Um, and so that's where it becomes meaningful to those of us who may fall in that 15 to 64 category. Yeah, yeah it affects us in so many different ways, not the least of which is the way governments are going to have to respond. And ultimately, it's going to require more money. And if they can find the staff, I mean, that's the other issue, but it's going to be a major shape. Uh, shaping force in, in public policy very soon. It already is, and it's only going to become more important, right? Absolutely. And what I think is so interesting about the Statistics Canada report is that there are regional differences, which some were news to me. Like, if you look at the population of Calgary, who is um, 65 and above, it's just 13.5%. And then if you look at Trois-Rivières, Quebec, it's 26%. So there's a lot of regional differences. So it's not going to be that the solution um, will be the same across Canada. There's going to have to be some fine-tuning and regional approaches. Um, and that's why I say all levels of government are going to be need to be part of that discussion. It won't be a one-size-fits-all across Canada. Yeah, it's going to be a really interesting time. Doctor, thank you so much for uh, joining us this morning. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Take care. You too. That is uh, Dr. Jacqueline McMillan, who is a clinical assistant professor of geriatric medicine at University of Calgary. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.